branches, identifying himself willingly with his own and telling his own to root themselves all the more into him. Throughout Scripture, we're given many different word pictures to help us understand the nature of God and his connection to us, his relationship with us, and our relationship to him. Each illustration gives us a a different aspect of him as God and us as disciple, follower, believer. So in John 10, we're told he's the good shepherd and we are the sheep, that he as a good shepherd has laid down his life for us, he's purchased us. We as a sheep enter in through the, the only door who is him into the sheepfold of safety and salvation and protection and provision. We're told in Ephesians 5 that he is the bridegroom and we are the bride, the corporate bride of Christ. That he as the bridegroom has given his life in love for her, sacrificially loving, for, loving her and completely giving himself up for his bride. The bridegroom in, or the bride in return then, responds to the love of the bridegroom with respect and honor and submission and humble following of her bridegroom. We're told in the Gospels that Jesus is king and we are his subjects in his kingdom, citizens of his kingdom, as joy-filled and as blessed as possible under his righteous rule. We're told that God is, that Jesus specifically is the head and we are his body various parts of his work in the world. That we, as his body, are receiving instruction and direction and life from our head. Told to grow up into maturity, into our head, who is Christ in Ephesians 4. We're told throughout the Gospels and throughout the epistles that Jesus is our master and we are his slaves, that he has full authority over us. And we are to be completely devoted followers and obedient slaves to our master. Well, as we saw last week, the metaphor that Jesus lays before us in John 15 as he approaches his final minutes of life on this earth before his crucifixion and his last few moments with his disciples is the metaphor of the vine and the branches. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches in verse 5 fairly simple metaphor to understand. Not not much thought needs to go into this to grasp that the the life of the branch is wrapped up entirely in the vine, completely dependent upon the life source, the sap that comes through and by the vine. The fruitfulness of that branch is completely dependent then upon the vine. So if the branch is going to produce grapes, it must be rooted into the grape vine. Jesus went on to explain more of that, that that as a follower of Christ, you only have life in him, and you can only be fruitful if you are in him, as you abide in him. And if you are a fruitful branch, if you are a true disciple, then you can expect to be pruned by the Father, the vine dresser. He, in his wisdom and in his love, will prune you perfectly so that you produce more fruit. That's the metaphor of choice for Jesus as he prepares these men for him to be gone and them to continue on in the faith. He assures them, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser. You are the branches. This is not your work to do, brothers, he's saying to them. This is my work to do through you. 
This is not your life to create or sustain or make happen for all of eternity. I will provide that. You connect yourself to me. You, by faith, abide in me. We laid the foundation of that abiding in verses 1 through 6 last week as as Jesus made so clear that metaphor and all that it means. This week our attention turns to verses 7 through 11 in which we see the spiritual blessings of being united to Christ. You can't have the one without the other. You can't just jump to the blessings without the foundation. You can't build a house without a clear and steady foundation underneath it. And so Jesus has called us to abide in him and now he tells us this is what will happen in you, through you, and for you, if you abide in me. Glorious promises by Jesus. John 15, verse 7, he says this, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There are some unalterable, unchangeable realities that are always true in this relationship between Jesus and his disciples. It is fundamentally, unalterably true that He is the Lord and the Savior, that He is the vine and that we are the branches. It is unalterably true that you cannot make yourself a branch, that you you must be redeemed by the, the vine. To mix metaphors a bit, you must be born again into His family to be spiritually redeemed and made into a branch. It's unalterably true that this is all of grace, not of anything we do. It's provided by God. It's applied by God. It's secured by God. And it ultimately glorifies God, our salvation does. It's all by sovereign grace. It's all by grace that we are grafted into the vine, connected to Christ through faith in Him. And then once we're connected, we will bear fruit. All those are are unalterable truths. We We can't move those pieces on the chessboard. Those are glued down. They are always true. But also in this relationship, there are apparently things which we have direct impact on. So how we behave in this relationship impacts some of these things that we read about in verses 7 through 11, namely these spiritual blessings. So the command that governs verses 7 through 11 is the command, abide in Christ. You agree? That's the main command, abide in Christ. The logic of the text then, the logic of Jesus' words is to the degree you abide in Christ is the degree to which you experience the blessings of abiding in Christ. Namely, answered prayer. The experience of the love of God for you. The fruitfulness that comes of abiding in Christ which glorifies Him. And overflowing joy. Those are spiritual blessings promised to the believer who roots himself, abides himself in Christ, the vine. To say it another way, not all believers are the same. Not all believers have the same spiritual experience. Some Christians have more or less answered prayer in their lives. 
Some Christians have more joy than others. Some have less fruitfulness. Some are more glorifying to God than others. Some are less obedient to Christ. Some have more of the words of Christ abiding in them. What is it that makes the the difference between those kinds of Christians? Is it just their disposition? Is it just the, the work of God uniquely on that individual to make them more joyful? Is it the unique trial He's entrusted to them that makes them less abiding, less committed to His Word? Well, the obvious answer from John 15 that Jesus gives us is that it is abiding in Christ. What makes the difference is union with Christ. Connection to Christ. Abiding in the vine. When we do this, we will see more answered prayer. We'll know more of His love. We'll know more of His fruitfulness. We'll experience more of His joy as we grow in our abiding in Christ. I want to walk through these four benefits this morning. Before we get there, let me just remind you of what it means to abide in Christ. I'm using that term. I'll use it, that phrase, a lot in the next couple of minutes. The word abide is translated also as remain, to take up residence in Christ. You need really only to just kind of think a little bit about the metaphor of the vine and the branches to understand what it means to abide in Christ. It's like what the branch must do in the vine. It must bore itself down into the vine. It must connect itself completely and totally to the vine. It must understand that it has life nowhere else but the vine. The vine is everything to the branch. If it's disconnected from the vine, it loses life and fruitfulness. It dries up. It's thrown and burned. So too for the Christian with Christ. To abide in Christ for you, believer, is to remain in Him, in full dependence upon Him. To by faith receive that you have life nowhere else. You have no hope of fruitfulness in anything else. That all of your all is wrapped up in Christ. He is truly your all in all. He is preeminent in all things, for you, believer, and for His church. Everything is found in Him. But it's not a a passive, agree that that is true, and let God carry you along from there. Just let go and, and mystically rest in Christ, abide in Him, and hope something happens. In our own text, Jesus has been quite clear that to abide in Him looks like abiding or having His words abide in you. Which He goes on to explain means that you will obey His commands. It does not mean you go to bed at night with the Bible over your face and hopefully the words get into abiding in you somehow and then fruit will come out some way. It means you, by effort, by spiritual fervor, rooted in grace, carried along by the Spirit, seek more of His Word so that it would abide in you. It's an active pursuit of this Word of Christ in all areas of life, so that you would walk by faith in accord with His Word, in humble submission and faith that His way is right and best, and that this is true spiritual living. And when you do that, you'll know more of the benefits listed in verses 7-11. through 
the first benefit listed is that we will be heard. That we will be heard. This is in contrast to the branches of verse 6. We didn't read it this morning, but we did last week. The, the branches of verse 6 who don't abide in Christ are then thrown into the fire and burned. These are not believers who lose their salvation. These are professing Christians, those who look the part but aren't the part. They dress themselves up like branches. They, they put plastic fruit on their branches, making it look like they are in Christ. They say all the right things. They're at all the right places. They act all the right ways when people are around, but they're not actually in Christ. And only the vine dresser knows that. And he takes them off and throws them into the fire to be burned. That's always a metaphor for judgment in the Scriptures to be burned away from the goodness and mercy of God. This is in contrast to those in verse 7. Now we have this promise of blessing. Jesus says, if you abide in me, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. What an astounding promise. That's a showstopper as you're reading through the text of Scripture. You've read it so often, you just read, you keep reading. You ought not. Read it like you've only first seen it this time. Ask anything you wish, and it will be done for you. The tax of that promise, as you saw, are the conditions of verse 7. You must abide in Christ, and Christ's words must abide in you. That's the reciprocal nature of this abiding relationship. We abide in Him, and His words abide in us. The result of that is that we pray to the Lord from the right basis, abiding in Him by faith, and for the right things, in accord with His word. So we're praying from the the right foundation and for the right things, and Jesus says, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Just a few minutes earlier in chapter 14, Jesus had said in the upper room to them, verses 13 and 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Same promise, ask anything you wish, and I will do it. There the conditions are a little different. The conditions are you ask in my name and for the glory of my Father. Ask in my name. So ask as though I were asking. Similar to let my words abide in you. How would we know what Jesus would ask the Father on our behalf in any given moment? Because we have his words, his will, clearly revealed in Scripture, permeating our thoughts and directing our prayers. And we know to pray this way because Christ told us this is how we ought to pray. And we take it by faith, we abide in him, we pray, and we see answers to prayer. To help you with this idea of abiding in Christ, last week I turned your attention to Luke 8 and verse 15 at the end. I won't go there again, but it's the parable of the soils. It's such a helpful description of a true Christian. This is what it means to be in Christ, Luke 8, 15. It's the the good soil of the truly converted heart. It's described as, as one who hears the word and receives it into their heart and receives it with a sincere and a true faith, or the the text says an honest and a good heart. The heart of the true disciple believes Christ's words, takes them in as though they are true, as though there's nothing more true than these words, as though if this is the only thing true, it's all I need. And they stake their life and their eternity upon the words of Christ. That's what it means to be a true disciple. Paul advances that idea in Colossians 3 and verse 16. 
after he's defended and explained the gospel in chapter 2, chapter 3, he starts applying those gospel realities to the church. He talks to them about letting the peace of Christ rule among them. And then in verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let the, the word of Christ so permeate every pore of your spiritual man that when you get together, you can't help but sing those words to each other. Praising him and rejoicing in him and exhorting one another with those words. Let his word take up residence in your home is another way to say it. Dwell in you richly. Don't just give him the guest room and the guest bath. Don't just invite him to breakfast in the morning and let him see the kitchen neatly cleaned and the dining room nicely put together. Don't just let him in the main living areas of the house of your spiritual life. Rather, let the word of Christ dwell richly and abundantly in every part. Let it open every closet. And pull open every drawer. Let the word of Christ look in every place you stash all the nasty stuff. Let him have access in every place. Let him shape your thinking with his word. Let him evaluate and change your view of every part of life with his word. Let him help you think about things around you with his word. It's not so important as to think, what do I think about this? As it is, what does Christ think about this? What does Christ say about this? The perversion of our culture, what does Christ say about that? My needy, lost neighbor, what does Christ say about that? My lack of love for my wife. What does Christ say about that? My lack of desire to serve the body of Christ. What does Christ say about that? Not what excuse do I have for that? Not what closet am I stuffing that in in my life? No, what does Christ say about that? Let his word dwell richly in you. Let his word fan into flame your affections for Christ. Love for him that dominates every attitude and action. Let the word of Christ evaluate your every desire, your every impulse of flesh, mind, and heart. Let the word of Christ be the judge in that moment in your heart over why it is you want that thing. And why it is you'll go do whatever it is you'll go do to get that thing. It is in that moment you need more than anything the Word of Christ to abound in your living room of your heart. Let Him come in and permeate every part. Abide in Christ. When you do, Jesus says, ask anything in my name and I will do it for you. Maybe the opposite of that would be helpful for you to just think of alternatives here. So if you don't abide in Christ, if his words are not dwelling richly in you, then the Bible is clear, your prayers are hindered, right? This is a biblical principle, a biblical thought. 
The psalmist in Psalm 66, verse 18 says, in the context of pleading with the Lord for help. The whole psalm is about, I was in a bad spot, I needed the Lord to help, and he heard me, and he rescued me. Verse 18, he says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. James says in chapter 4 of his letter that we do not get answers to our prayers. Why? Because we ask wrongly. Well, how do we ask wrongly? We ask to spend it on our own lusts. We're asking fleshly requests for our own flesh desires and, and benefits rather than in accord with the word of Christ. Peter says to husbands in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, live with your wives in an understanding way, knowing that they are the weaker vessel deserving great honor in your home. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. We are full of the words of Christ, abiding in Christ, He in us. We pray in accord with those words that are dwelling in us, and we pray out of our lives living in obedient faith, and those prayers are things which our Lord loves to answer. A few years ago, as dad of younger children, still weren't quite young, but they were younger. It struck me one day that I often entered the home at the end of the day with all the weight of the world on my shoulders, the the burden of, of ministry and of things that I dealt with that day in the office at work. And I just realized one night that I'm really kind of a jerk. I'm not a blessing when I walk in the door. I don't bring into my home the the joy and the happiness of of a husband who loves to be with his wife and with his kids, and I I bring those burdens, so I was quick to complain. I was quick-tempered in those moments, able to easily find fault with whoever crossed my path. As the Lord opened my eyes, I was like, this is not good, not right, not honoring to the Lord. If it continues, it's disqualifying for the work of an elder in the church. This has to change. As I started feeding my heart with the word of Christ, I just started pleading with the Lord to make this change in me. And just a simple habit change on my five-minute drive home, which is hardly long enough, but it was apparently long enough for the Lord to hear. He doesn't need a bunch of time, apparently. I just turned off the radio and started praying. Confessing to the Lord all the, the burdens I was carrying in the moment, laying them at his feet, simple stuff. You're all shaking, you're like, yeah, I know. Yeah, I knew too, but I wasn't doing it. Laying it before the Lord and saying, this is not mine to carry, it's yours. And I have another job to do that I can't do in my own strength. I'm exhausted, I'm wiped, I want to sit down in front of the TV and do nothing else. But I turn from that desire, Lord, because it's not your desire for me. I know what your word is about this moment. I know what you want me to do. You want me to love sacrificially. You want me to engage helpfully. So I just started praying and admitting to the Lord, I can't do that. I need your strength, your help, your grace to make that happen. To the level that I humbly depended was the level to which I was able to bear fruit in my home. Don't talk to my kids later about how that's going now. I'm just kidding, you can I trust I can continue to walk by humble faith in that way. Beloved, that's just a simple example. 
everyday kind of stuff that I give to you out of my life because you have that same kind of stuff for you. You know the word of Christ and you know you can't keep it. Pray. Plead with the Lord as his words abide in you. Beg of him for his strength as a branch rooting itself in the vine and see the Lord answer your prayer. As we face crisis especially, you must know that our flesh is prone to dominate our prayer life. As we face difficulty and trial and trouble that are beyond us, that lay us low in the dust heap of life, we're burdened with that circumstance, which we should be, obviously. We don't make light of that. It's brutal. First Peter says that. If we have to suffer under these trials, it's suffering. It's hard. But we're prone in our prayer life to let our flesh, our, our temporary desires and wants to dominate our prayers. And so we pray about things that we're not exactly sure what the will of the Lord is on them. So we pray about circumstantial things. Asking the Lord to, to move the chess pieces around on the board of my life and, and give me a victory here. And it's not wrong to wrestle through those things and to lay them before the Lord and to leave them with Him and to ask Him to change it. Read the Psalms. They're often saying, get me out of this pit. I'm not sure I can continue trusting you if you don't get me out of the pit. But Lord, I trust you. <laughs> Until you do, right? I mean, that's, that's the Psalms wrapped up in a phrase. But more than that, we must in those hardest of times, know the mind of Christ on those matters. Not knowing the secret will of the Lord with the circumstantial things, His providential dealings with every one of our lives. We, we do know His mind on the spiritual things, on the eternal things. We do know what He wants to produce in us through these things. And we do know the promise of John 15 and verse 7, that if we ask according to those words, he will give them to us. So while we're begging for a relief from temporal afflictions, ought we not also, nay, I say more, beg of God to conform us to the image of his Son through the affliction, to increase and abound us in love for him and for one another, to show us another layer of our pride and selfishness, that we might repent and be healed by the grace of Christ, that he might teach us another level of humility as he pushes us down under circumstances. Ought we not also pray, Lord, make me humble in this? Or how tragic would it be if the Lord simply removed those things and we were no different? by the end of them. Knowing the mind of Christ, we ought to pray the words of Christ, confident of the answer of Christ. Another blessing of abiding in Christ that we will be fruitful, verse 8. We'll be fruitful. This fruitfulness then will be glorifying to the vine dresser. This links us back to verse 2. Jesus said clearly that the, the branches are those that bear fruit. They'll be pruned to bear more fruit. Here Jesus gives us more clarity in verse 8. He says, if a branch is, is truly connected to the vine, it will bear much fruit. And by bearing much fruit, then it will be magnifying to the vine dresser. Because the vine dresser is obviously doing a good job caring for his vineyard, 
if the branches of the vine are prospering. And if they're bearing more fruit than they did before, all the more glory to the vine dresser who's doing good work. So if we bear fruit, to just kind of state some spiritual principles here, if we bear fruit, we prove to be the disciples of Jesus. And as we bear fruit as the disciples of Jesus, we can know that we'll be pruned by the vine dresser so that we bear more fruit. And by bearing more fruit, we will glorify the one who's doing the work. And abiding in Christ then is the essence of that discipleship. What's your job as the branch? Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. The chief result is the fruitfulness that glorifies God. This is also what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let your light so shine before others so that men may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that we are to be morally pure with our bodies so that we can be a pure temple for the Holy Spirit because we've been bought with a price. Our bodies are not our own. He concludes by saying, therefore, what? Glorify God with your body, your pure vessel for the Holy Spirit. Chapter 10 of that same book, he speaks of how we are to treat one another in matters of conscience, things we can disagree about and and still be Christians, and still be in the same body of Christ together. Instead of bickering over food and when to eat it and what to eat and what not to eat, we ought to glorify God whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says to the church in Corinth, you need to rise up and sacrificially give to the saints, the poor saints in Jerusalem, like you said you were going to do. Paul writes his letter to remind them of their commitment, to stir them up to love and good deeds through his letter, to have the gift ready to go to Jerusalem when he arrives on the scene. And he says, if you do this, Paul says, I am certain that thanksgivings to God will abound. That there will be abounding thanksgivings because of your work of fruitfulness for our Lord. In Philippians 1, Paul prays that the church would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, listen, that comes through Jesus Christ. That's abiding in Christ. He prays, Lord, fill them with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. They're abiding in Christ. And then he says, to the glory and praise of God. That's the result. That's exactly what we see in verse 8 in our text. That they would be fruitful to the glory of God. Titus 2, Paul says to older women, teach younger women to be self-controlled and to, to know how to respond to their husbands and relate to them and how to be a mother to their kids. He says the result of that is that the word of God will not be reviled. In other words, God will be glorified because this church will be modeling in their daily tasks their commitment to the word of God. He goes on just a few verses later to say to the slaves in the church, Listen, here's how you should serve as unto the Lord. And by serving this way, do it so that you adorn the doctrine of God. I love that phrase. You adorn the doctrine of God. You, you make it and show it as glorious as it is by how you live. 1 Peter 2.12, we're called to be holy among unbelievers in our conduct so that when they revile us, 
It won't stick. And actually, on the final day, it will turn to the glory of God. It will be proven on the day of judgment that our works actually were pure and holy, and God will be praised. 1 Peter 4.11, we're told that the exercise of our gifts within the body of Christ, which is clearly a fruit of abiding in the vine, wouldn't you say? To work hard with how the Spirit has gifted you to serve the body of Christ. When you do that, it is to the glory of God through Jesus Christ. So believer, your fruitfulness is dependent upon your connection to Christ. And as you abide in Him, you'll produce more and more spiritual fruit, and all of that will bring glory to the Father. Third result, you'll be loved. We will be loved. Jesus said in verses 9 and 10, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Notice first the unsurpassable, inexplicable description of God's love for us. Jesus says to his disciples and to you, his disciples today, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. There is an infinite well of truth in that statement. Like the Father has shown love for the Son, so the Son says, I love you. Unending, infinite, holy, everlasting, perfect love. Unconditional and uncompromised. Unending, never failing, never absent, complete and total and perfect and whole in every way. As the Father loves the Son, so do I love you, Jesus said. Obviously, the Father loves you. We've talked about that. There's not a, there's not a schizophrenic Godhead in which one member of the Godhead loves and the other hates and one's trying to convince the other that they should love you too. Well, they, Father, Son, and Spirit, love those who are God's own. But Jesus is the tip of the spear of that love, right? Isn't that exactly what Jesus said in John 3, verse 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, his one and only Son. So how do you know God loves you? Because he gave his Son for you. So Jesus says, I love you as my Father has loved you. So once you're in Christ, by grace through faith, there's a sense in which you can never be taken out of that love of God for you, correct? Is this not Romans 8? What shall separate you from the love of Christ? A tribulation or trial or distress or trouble or death or persecution? Can any of those things separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus for you? No, in all of these things, you are more than conquerors. Because of Christ's love for you, you shall never be separated from Christ's love. But there is another sense in which the more we abide in Christ, the more of his love we know and experience. And so that is the command of verse 9, to abide in his love. So you are loved, abide in his love. Dwell in his love, live in his love. Well, how do you do that? Well, Jesus answers that for you. He tells you what to do, and then he tells you what that means. He says, abide in my love by obeying my commandments. Which is another, word, another way of saying, let my words abide in you. 
Don't just think them, do them. And then he gives you the example, in case you're confused still, he lets you know an example of what this means. So abide in my love as I abide in my Father's love, and obey my commandments as I obeyed my Father's commandments and abided in his love. So abide in the love of God by obeying the commands of God, just as Christ did in his relationship with the Father. This is a a two-pronged theme in the Gospel of John, is it not? The obedience of the Son and the love of the Father between the Father and the Son. How many times has Jesus said in this Gospel that I as the Son only do what the Father commands me, or I've done everything the Father's commanded me, and because I have, he loves me. He says it over and over and over again. And now Jesus says to you, abide in my love for you in the same way. Have my words dwell deeply in you, root themselves down in you, and you root yourselves in his love by obeying his commands. The love of God is never separated from the command of God. They're inseparable reality. He commands us Because he loves us. And he shows his love for us by clearly telling us the truth of the matter and how it is that we should live in light of that truth. And we abide in that love by doing what he has commanded us. We receive that love of the Father by saying, I agree, I'll do it your way. I'll obey you and live as you told me to live. This is entirely opposite of how our culture defines love, not just our culture. All of humanity since the garden has defined it this way. But especially recently, the the rise of of the inner self has been so prevalent and obvious and unmistakable that now we as a culture have redefined love to not even do something for me that's nice. That used to be love. Or show me something kind, that'll show me love. Now it's, let me be who I say I am and celebrate it to its fullest extent. Because how unloving of you to tell me that what I want to be, whether it's reality or not, is not true, is not possible. That's the most unloving thing you can do in our culture is to say, well, actually, that can't happen. It doesn't matter how many surgeries you have. How many changes in your Twitter bio you make? No matter how many essays you write in modern newspapers to convince us of this, it is not reality. And if you say that, you're the most unloving bigot alive. Because to love in our culture is to affirm the fullest and freest expression of self that any one individual determines they are going to do. This is why, by the way, progressive Christians, and that's actually a group of people, not just a general title. It's a movement of so-called Christians who progressively pursue engaging with the culture, actually imbibing the culture, and putting a Christian bumper sticker on it and saying it's okay, it's all good. This is how they do that. They've changed, redefined the meaning of love. That God loves us by affirming us by accepting us. And if indeed there is sin somewhere in there, he's so loving, he'll forgive us, wipe the slate clean, and it'll all be good. We'll all end up in that happy place together someday anyways. That's the essential message of progressive Christianity. 
Jesus clearly says in John 15, that is, that is not the love of God, and that is not love for God. If we abide in Christ, we abide in His love by keeping His commandments. Receiving His love by receiving His command. As the psalmist says, we will taste and see that the Lord is good. As Paul says in his first call, his first exhortation after gospel explanation in Romans 12 too. Lay down your lives as a living sacrifice and test the will of God to see if it's good and find out that it's good, acceptable, and perfect and do it. Be transformed to do the will of God. As we abide in the love of Christ, we create then the spiritual snowball in our inner man which runs downhill by the movement of the Spirit of God, creating momentum, building up more and more with increased obedience to the will and the way of God. So take the next step, brother or sister, of obedience. You'll never perfectly obey all the words of Christ. That is not what Jesus is calling you to here. This is dripping with grace and mercy and forgiveness. But he is saying to you, there, there's more in the house. Take the next step in. See the next room of obedience. And enjoy the delights of abiding in the Father's house and having His love abide in you as you walk in accordance with His way and know the joy of His love for you. Which segues nicely to the fourth fruit of this abiding, it is that we will be joy-filled in verse 11. Not just joyful, like we have a little joy here and there. Joy-filled. He says, I said these things to you. So you may have my joy in you, and that your joy may be filled. The idea of filled is to complete and total overflowing the cup is so full that you can't move it without spilling it. Every part of the cup is full with joy. Jesus says, this is available to you as you abide in me. To define simple terms so we're all on the same page, joy is that inner sense of deep delight and gladness in all that God is and all that God does. It's that deep contentment of heart willing to rest by faith on all that God has said and all that God has done. This surpasses present circumstances and difficulties, provoking us to praise him in the prison cell. This is Paul and Silas singing out at midnight. Praises to God when their plans didn't go as they wanted and they're facing certain death. They enjoy, praise God. Joy is an underground river which runs abundant even when there is great drought on the surface of life. Joy is a firm foundational reality which is unmoved even though the house above is being battered and beaten in the wind and the storm. And Jesus says, I have spoken to you these things that so you can have that kind of joy. You can have my joy and he wants you not just to have the grocery store sample size version of joy where you walk through and you're delighted to taste a new food for about two minutes. But he wants you to have the, the whole freezer in the grocery store full of joy. A lifetime supply 
never-ending, constantly with you, overflowing joy. He says, I've told you all these truths so that your joy can abound in that way. So believer, joy is the result of boring yourself down into Christ. Joy is the product of abiding in Christ. It's the soul level result of having Christ's words abide in us and shape us. This spiritual happiness comes on the far side of spiritual holiness. Taking, believing, and abiding in the word, being shaped by them, and knowing the joy that they produce. Seeing answers to prayer, seeing fruitfulness in our lives in answer to those prayers, as we abide in him, seeing joy abound. The very opposite is true, isn't it, as well? When we're not abiding in Christ, when we're not living in accord with these words, when we're not obeying what we know is his will, when we aren't praying and trusting, when we're living according to our own wisdom in the moment, doing our own thing, our own way, in whatever category it is, you struggle to do that, then what do you lack? Joy. It takes it away faster than anything else. Think of David with his sin, with the, the wife of Uriah. Living in his unrepentant sin for over a year, he is miserable to the point of physical ailment and sickness. Read Psalm 32. Being confronted by Nathan the prophet, he repents, sees his sin, confesses it to the Lord, and then begins the fight for joy. Right? Psalm 51, confessing, resting in the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. He prays near the end, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So brother or sister, your joy in Christ can be more or less known and experienced. And Jesus has put before you this morning the path to the fullness of joy. It's through union with him as the vine. It's through abiding in him. It's through obeying him and abiding in his love. This is not legalism. This is not saying salvation is on the other end of obedience or on the other end of abiding. No, it's putting salvation here, being rooted in the vine by grace, and then calling you to abide through obedience through receiving his word by faith and knowing joy. Two examples of this, and then we'll be finished. Remember John the Baptist? This actually is the first time in John's gospel we've come across the word joy since chapter 3. Now in the upper room, from this text on, we'll come across it several more times. John the Baptist in chapter 3 is, is being confronted with people who basically are telling him, hey, Jesus has drawn all these disciples. Aren't you mad about that? What's wrong with you? Aren't you upset about this? And he says, no, not at all. Didn't you yourselves confess that, that I am not the Christ? But I have been sent before him. And then he goes on to give this example, this metaphor. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Then this statement, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete or full. John had a hard ministry. John had a lot of success in his ministry and a lot of opposition to his ministry. 
John and his ministry had to stand before rulers and declare the truth of, of God to them, which cost him his head. But he can say at the end of his ministry, after abiding in the words of Christ, after fulfilling his ministry of obedience to Christ, being the forerunner for Christ, now my joy is full. Now that would be something if it was just John. I've got a better example for you. I'll one-up that. Infinitely so, and that's Jesus, and you know this. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Author of Hebrews is pointing you to Christ as the the clear example to, to walk by faith after him, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The one who endured the cross and despised the shame and who is now seated at the right hand of God. And the writer of Hebrews lets you know what what compelled his obedience. What is it? The joy set before him. The joy set before him. Beloved, there are four tastes of this joy in the Christian life. There's an abundance of that experience in the here and now. But it is just the front porch. In eternity, you'll walk through the doors into an everlasting, unending, infinite mansion of joy. And the little glimpses of joy you know and see here, even in all the pain of a sin-cursed world, should whet your appetite for that eternal day when you will live forever, abiding with God in His fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore, the psalmist says. So beloved, the path to that is present, persistent, abiding in Christ. That we might know more answered prayer. That we might be more spiritually fruitful and therefore more glorifying to the Lord that we might know more of the love of God and that we might know greater joy in this life, there is one path, friend. It is Christ. So walk in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the glory of Christ. He is our only hope and our highest joy, our greatest treasure. Without him, we are nothing and we can do nothing. And so we, as your church, look to you in this moment and we declare that our hope is singularly, completely, and totally upon our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Trusting that he is the vine will give us all that we need to thrive as followers of him. So, Lord, help us to walk in Christ. Thank you for all that you have accomplished to make us partakers of Christ. As we leave this place, help us to be ambassadors for our Lord, to point others to our Savior. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.